If you have your Bibles, which I believe most of y'all do, if not, you can download one on your phone, which I'm sure you already have. You can turn to Luke chapter 24, and we'll be starting in verse 13 and reading it together in just a, just a moment. My original plan coming into this uh, passage was to actually do the whole, the whole passage here, the whole story between uh, verses 13 through 35. But instead of having one really super long, huge sermon, I've decided to cut it down into two smaller ones uh, since we are meeting outside. So I was thinking of y'all, and, and so I know we're extending it one more week, but even so, uh, this, is a, this is a great passage and uh, a passage that I have been looking forward to preaching. Uh, I love this text. I love this, this story, and I love seeing um, the kindness of, of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, the mercy of God in this passage. And I hope that you will see that this morning as well as we engage it. This morning, we have, in our passage, we have come to the, um, the, 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 the narrative of the, the road to Emmaus. And I think most of us are pretty familiar with this and, and what's going down with that. And we're going to unpack that as, as we go this morning. But this is probably one of the most vivid and one of the greatest appearances of the resurrected Jesus Christ that we have uh, in, in the scriptures. It's certainly one of the longest of the 11 different passages that show us of the appearances of Jesus. And, and it's one of the most amazing uh, ones because of what Jesus does in this uh, particular passage. In Luke's gospel, this is the, the first appearance of, of Jesus. So last week, there was no Jesus, right? In fact, that was the whole point. Jesus wasn't there. The, the empty tomb was no Jesus. And, and that was the whole point when the women got there that morning. Luke warned us to see that the tomb is empty. It, was, it wasn't missing. He was, he was risen. But this morning, we see the appearance of Jesus come to two disciples along uh, along this road from Jerusalem to uh, to Emmaus and these two disciples whom by the way we've not heard of before um, are are two disciples that know all about what happened over these last couple of days they are very familiar about what's going on they understood these particular events but around all of that, they didn't grasp the, the gravity, the depth of the story and what God was and what God was doing. And so they had a very incomplete understanding of the gospel and what God was working. And so what Jesus does with these two guys, at least we are assuming that they're guys, they may not, both of them may not be, is that Jesus takes the scripture and he connects the scripture to all that they already have known that helped them understand what they think they understood. So the, the, the grand theme of this passage, again, as, as Luke wants us to see, is that Jesus is truly resurrected, but there's something very important also taking place in this passage. Just like the women last week these two disciples, these two followers, these two acquaintances, whatever you want to uh, call them, they have an incomplete understanding or an incomplete 
uh, interpretation of understanding the scriptures. They have an incomplete understanding and the, the outcome of that incomplete understanding is shown very explicitly in the, in the passage is that they are overcome with, with, with devastation. They are sad. They are, they're, they're, they're going to Emmaus and sadness and hopelessness. And however, what we see in the kindness of our Savior and by his mercy, he appears to these two guys that we don't know as resurrected, risen, as the angels told us last week he was. And he connects the scripture to the events that have taken place. And he flips all of our understanding upside down. So let's look at the passage this morning. Let's start reading in verse 13. And, and, and catch what I've been saying and see if you find those, those things to be true. Let's look at verse 13. On that very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, besides all this, it is... It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They, they were out at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that, had been, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us, they went to the tomb and found it, just as the women said. But he did not see. But they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. What an amazing passage. I hope you're just kind of amazed by that, by that passage as much as I have been. And, and truthfully, sort of unexpected. If you read this, not ever knowing the story and reading the story previously, it's, it's sort of un, unexpected. It doesn't 
seem like this is the time or the people and the place that Jesus would reveal himself. Seems to me he would go to his 11 disciples first. And he does eventually appear to them and possibly even by this point, he's already appeared to Peter and John according to the other uh, according to the other Gospels, but these two guys, they don't know about that yet. And these two guys, these two disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem, maybe even heading back home to their town of Emmaus, the village of Emmaus, which happens to be a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. And they were having a conversation, as any one of us would have, as we were on a, a walk or on a journey with one another. And Jesus appears to them almost, as, almost out of nowhere, appears kind of in this, on this, along this road, and then he makes himself a part of their a group, and then he's part of their conversation. And, and we have to be very careful in particular when we read this passage. It's like verse 16 is very important. It's very important. And, and you can just kind of hear this is the testimony of these guys to, to Luke. That the that our eyes, their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Now this doesn't mean, that, that doesn't, didn't mean that they were physically blind like the Apostle Paul was when Jesus had come to him along the Damascus road. Jesus likes to meet people on the road, doesn't he? He didn't go blind like Paul did. And it wasn't a, a blindness that was self-inflicted by them that had caused them not to be able to recognize the Lord and recognize Jesus, but it was the Lord. It was something very spiritual that has caused them to not be able to see or even hear that it is Jesus and make that connection. That it is Jesus, the one that they are talking to, the one that they're traveling, the one that they're listening to. They don't recognize that to be the case. But we are led into that secret, aren't we? We know from the very beginning that this is Jesus. This isn't just anybody. This is the risen Savior talking to these guys. And what are they talking about? That's Jesus' question as he gets in that conversation. What are you, what are you guys talking about? In verse 17, they're stunned by that question. They're stunned. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? How could someone travel? In fact, this is kind of his question. How could, how could someone traveling from Jerusalem uh, like we are not know what has gone down these past couple days? How in the world have you missed it? What rock have you been living in? Where have you been? And it also says before Cleopas responded... What is it? How does it describe them? Their state. They stopped. They, they were stopped, stunned in their tracks, stopped, and, and, and instantly grief overcame their, their faces. They were saddened. And what were they sad about? What were they, what were they sad about? They were sad about the death of Jesus Christ. They were saddened by what had taken place in Jerusalem. And so what does the incognito Jesus say or ask then? He says, what things? 
what things, what, what things had happened. Now, if you don't think that our God has a sense of humor, then what is this? Besides giraffes and maybe me, God has a sense of humor. What, what things? What things? He's, he's certainly, he's mining their hearts, but man, this is just good stuff. These, from, from here, the, the two disciples, they're going to answer Jesus's question. They're going to tell him all the things that they, that they have seen, all the things that they witnessed. And, and here's what's really important. They don't know it's Jesus. And so all that they're going to say to him is completely unvarnished. It's completely unvarnished, like they're just talking to some random dude on the road. They're going to tell them all about the things that they know. And in, what we, and in it, and what we are going to see is we're really going to see their hearts in this unvarnished truth. It's not going to be what they would have said or what they would want to project if they knew that it was Jesus. That's very important here. It's very important. We'll talk about more about that in just a moment. So that brings us to our, our first point this morning. As we look at these disciples, they had an incomplete interpretation. They had an incomplete interpretation of the whole scriptures, all of scriptures. It's clear, it's clear from this passage that these two guys loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. They were followers of him. That's why I'm going to call them disciples. They followed Jesus. They, they trusted Jesus. And yet it was a trust in love that was still incomplete. It was still incomplete. And Jesus will show us later as he shows them later that it was incomplete. That they had an incomplete interpretation And because of this incomplete uh, uh, interpretation or understanding of the scriptures, where had that left them? Hopeless and sad and grieving on the road to Emmaus. Instead of rejoicing, for he is not here, he is risen. Let Let me show you what I mean. So even though they were kept from seeing Jesus and Jesus asked them about their conversation, the events that had been taking place, Luke gives us the detail of their physical and emotional response to the question. They stopped in their tracks and they're in their place. They were, they were visibly sad and they looked sad because they were sad. They were grieved because they were grieved. They were visibly upset because they were upset. They had tears because they had tears of sadness. Because they had just witnessed the death of Jesus and they had lost all hope. Now, to help you understand this, if you've ever lost a family member, if you've ever lost a family member and someone asks you how you're doing, you almost stop in your tracks and you, you're kind of already doing good. Someone asks how you're doing and, and, and it's almost like the emotions just get to you like that. Because why? It's so raw. It's so close to home. And, and, and even for a couple days, even months, at a, at a drop of a dime, at a mention of something, a memory may be triggered and we think about a, a loved one, a family member, a parent, or whatever it may be. 
and instantly we just, we, we feel it kind of well up. That's that grieving process. And, and that's exactly what these guys experience. They, they stop dead in their tracks and they're visibly sad when Jesus asks them these questions. Now we know why they were upset. They know why they were upset because of the loss of Jesus and they're grieving that loss. That's a real, natural, human emotion. But is it the real reason why Jesus diagnoses why they are so sad? Is it the same? Because he's going to go on and diagnose their sadness, not because he's dead, but because of their incomplete interpretation or understanding of the scriptures. So they answer Jesus's question. Listen to what they believe. They believe Jesus of Nazareth that he was a prophet, that he was mighty indeed. He was powerful and doing amazing miracles before all the people, that he proclaimed and taught the word of God like none other. That's a, that's a pretty accurate description of Jesus and the, the person and work of Jesus uh, as ministry. In fact, it's, it's almost like the words of Peter in Acts. He says sort of the, the, the same thing. And then they speak about how Jesus was arrested how he was tried by their chief priests and rulers. I, I, I love how they take ownership that these are our leaders. They, they did this. They condemned him to death and they crucified them. Again, sounds like good gospel preaching at this point, doesn't it? But then there's verse 21. But, uh-oh, this isn't one of those good buts or one of those good therefores. But, we had hoped, 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 past tense, hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. So here's where their hopes were dashed. I mean, it's been three days now, still nothing. Let's go home. We might as well go home now. It's been three days. How much longer do we have to wait? For, for something, for these guys, the other disciples to do something for something else or, or for, for the Romans to be destroyed. What, what else do we have to wait for? We thought he would redeem Israel. We thought he would bring nationalistic salvation to Israel. And so can you hear in verse 21, the hopelessness? And why? Why had they lost hope? Here's why. Because they looked for the glory of the Savior, of the Messiah, they had looked for the glory of God, the Messiah, to be in what? The wrong places. Because they didn't understand the Scriptures. They completely missed the note of Scriptures that talked about the suffering of the Son of God, the Messiah. They wanted God's blessings, but not God Himself. And what God was going to do. They wanted God's blessings, but not by the means by which God would have to reconcile their sin. And even with the testimony of the women that came to them that day, that, we, get that, we get that story. They knew it. Those women came back. They were still there. They heard about the empty tomb. They heard about the angel. They even heard of, of Peter's testimony back that the tomb was empty. They knew the facts of the gospel. 
They knew the facts of the story. They knew the facts of their own experiences. And yet they did not recognize the face of the gospel because they did not recognize the scriptures. Now, what's, what amazes me is that it seems at this point, this would be kind of that, it would be that kind of that shining moment where, where they're all hopeless and it's kind of the bottom of the story and things are looking really bad, that Jesus would all of a sudden would be unveiled, almost like, almost in a Hollywood kind of thing, you know, and uh, uh, what's the, uh, 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 gosh, a dumb movie, what is it called? The Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies, right? And he pulls off the mask like, wah, you know, it's me the whole time, you know? And that would have been the time for him to kind of unmask himself and be like, here I am, it's me, let me help you now. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And why? Why doesn't Jesus reveal himself now? And this is so important. Because Jesus' priority is the same priority that he has for us. And it should be the same priority that we have. And that is this. And that is, he wants us to understand and see him in the scriptures and not trust in our experiences or our emotions alone. He wants us to see him in the scriptures. You know, our whole world is in a place like these two guys. They live in an existence between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Deep down in their hearts, they have this same emotion, same thought. The things that they had hoped for. The things that we have placed our hopes in. Groanings of lost hopes in our culture we see every single day. Society is always trying to make things better, and and rightfully so. We're to be cultivating. We're to be pressing forward. We're always trying to make things better. And some people even believe that we can achieve, if we continue to make society better and better and better, that we can achieve this utopian society that'll come through social programs and more education and science Now, what they don't tell you, those who are pressing for this, is the really dark means by which they will turn to achieve that. We'll talk about that later. Now, sure, things for us now are way better than it was for people 100 years ago. Every single one of us live a life that is uncompared to what even the wealthiest of wealthy lived 100 years ago. I mean, I have a fan blowing on me and my kids not having to pull it or push it. I mean, we have air conditioning in our homes. We have sunglasses. We have iPad. I mean, we have some wonderful things. But however, in our culture, as we take one step forward, there still is a brokenness in us that still takes 10 steps back every day. The same struggles that still exist then still, still are here for us now. The same fears, the same injustices, the same sin, the same offense is still all around us. So every day the world cries out, we had hoped. And they live in this existence of we had hoped. 
And, and now we are at a point where this, we're postmodern and we're, we've moved to this post-Christian world where functionally, outside of Statesboro, brothers and sisters, functionally, the world exists as if Christianity is just useless. It's very post-Christian. It's out of fashion. It's out of date. It's patriarchal. It's abusive. Whatever. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't jive with that utopian society because we're moving forward. We're progressing. It doesn't jive with that utopian society and and those Marxist ideals. Culture believes that if we continue to progress forward, even past Christianity, that we can achieve something. But what, what continually happens? The same struggles over and over again. They have bought the lie of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche of the late 19th century who came after Karl Marx. He was the one who coined the phrase, God is dead. And the reason why he said that is because we have killed him. We don't need him anymore. So he is, he is dead. We don't need him anymore. We don't need Christianity anymore. Society has progressed past that. We are the builders. We are the creators. We are the ones who can make things better. Culture is in a hopeless state of a road to Emmaus walking away from Jerusalem with every step, with every step of the promises of progressivism and happiness and consumerism will never and can never bear the weight of the hopes of mankind. It never can. So so either side of things never can. It can never bear the weight of the deep longings of our souls. It can never fix the brokenness and the hopelessness that is in our hearts for the things we hoped for. And brothers and sisters, even as Christians, we are not immune to this sense of the things that we have hoped for, things that we've hoped. Because we of all people know that this world lives under a curse. And yet we have the resurrection life of Christ in us, that we are redeemed, we are reconciled, we are made new, but we still must be, we still must live on the way of the cross. We live in suffering and through suffering. And though Christ's reign is hidden in this world, his reign and his life is in our hearts and in our lives. And the hope that we have been given in the scriptures is this, that one day his reign will be manifest to all the world. And all the earth will see his glory and they will bow and take knee and see what they have been hoping for their whole entire life. So we walk this road with them. We don't walk as conquering victors. We don't walk as those with all the answers, but we walk as human beings, sinners who still struggle. And yet we know that we have a living hope, a living hope of our resurrected Savior. And why? Because you've experienced it? Or is it because the Word of God says it? Our assurance is built into the word of God and he has been revealed to us through the word of God.
And that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 25. What does he say? He says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Oh, how I hear him tenderly saying that to me constantly. Slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so just like the angels did with the women earlier that morning, Jesus tells them to remember the scripture, to turn to the scripture, the the word of God. Their failure of faith was not in their experiences. Their failure of faith was understanding the scriptures. Their foolishness and their slowness of heart was to what? To believe the scriptures and all that they say about him. Our failures of faith are the same. Our failure to believe the words of God and believe them in our hearts faith. They failed to believe all the prophets and the scriptures that have said about him and his sufferings. Certainly they believed the prophets about the Messiah. But what did they believe? They, they selectively believed. They selectively believed. They had an incomplete, a missing, missing the necessity of the suffering of the Messiah. And these are the things that Jesus taught his disciples. I mean, Jesus was very clear. I am going to suffer. I'm going to be arrested. I am going to die, but I will rise on the third day. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. Why? Because they didn't believe in the scriptures that they taught about him. So they didn't get it and they missed it. And they forgot because their interpretation, their theological viewpoint didn't have room for a suffering Savior. They missed completely the point of Isaiah 53. And one would wonder, how could you miss that? They didn't believe in the resurrection yet, even though the word of God has been clear about telling the story, the narrative of how Jesus would come, the Son of God would come into the world and would die and would rise again. All the promises of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And the outcome of all of that then was what? Their unbelief, their incomplete interpretation. They were sad, they were upset, they were distraught, they were hopeless. They couldn't properly understand the events that they had even witnessed with their own eyes because of their lack of understanding of the scriptures. It wasn't their eyesight that was the problem. It was their hearts and seeing and understanding the word of God. And that's why we see Jesus telling them and pointing them straight to the remedy, to the word of God. I think I said this last week, but our foundation, our Lenses by which we are to look at the world and how we are to understand the events of the world are through the scriptures and through the word of God. We have to have a complete interpretation of things, not just selectively picking and choosing of the scriptures. We have to understand the the whole counsel of God. And when we don't understand the full counsel of, of God, then we are more swayed to trust in our experiences and our emotions and our own feelings over the authority of the scriptures. And yes, Jesus calls them foolish and slow to heart, but I believe he is showing compassion on these guys. 
Because what does he do? He leads to correct them. But truly, as Jesus corrects them, brothers and sisters, we are to remember the word of God. It's by his compassionate love and grace and mercy he has given us the scriptures that we are to look at and we are to believe them and see the promises of God. When we only trust in ourselves and our experiences and emotions, we become that authority. Listen, experiences are helpful. We've all had them. Emotions are God-given and they are important and they are helpful in some ways, but it never changes the truth of the word of God. And when it ever does change the truth of the word of God in our hearts and in our lives and how we live, then let us hear the words of Jesus that says, Oh, foolish one, slow to believe, slow to believe. You wonder why you are hopeless. You wonder why you are sad. You wonder why you are slow to believe. In this life, hope, brothers and sisters, is not dashed, but it is deep. And it is greater because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the things that we accumulate. Our hope is not into worldly ideologies, but our hope is biblical. Our hope is certain and sure because it is biblical. Our hope is sure because he walked on the Emmaus road. And so as we are on this Emmaus road, let us walk hopefully in Christ in the assurance of the resurrected Savior because this is what the Word of God has taught us. We hope, not because we've had an experience or we've felt something magical or tingly. No. We hope because we have the assurances of the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. And that is which we have faith. Faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. And what gives us hope and confidence as we travel then on the Emmaus Road? As Jesus has directed us and directed the disciples, it's the word of God. That is the priority that Jesus has here on the Emmaus Road, is the word of God. Because it's only through the word that we see Christ. And it's where Christ is revealed. Verse 27 is just amazing. And by the way, this is the second point that Jesus gives. Jesus gives a complete, a complete interpretation. In verse 27, it's just amazing what Jesus does. He says this, it says this, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? The the greatest biblical study, biblical theology, expositional sermon ever to be proclaimed in the history of the world from front to back was on a road to a little town of Emmaus to two disciples. Why in the world did Jesus do that? Was it to create an experience for them? Or was it to restore or maybe even create a deep confidence in the scriptures? A deep confidence in the scriptures to find what? 
to find the risen Savior, to find him. Because that, brothers and sisters, is what is essential for Christian faith, hope, and joy. This is why we at Sovereign Grace, we prioritize expositional preaching over any other form of preaching because this is exactly what Jesus did. You're you're not too far off. If you just stick with what Jesus did, what would Jesus do or what did he do? He proclaimed the gospels and spoke the word of God expositionally. Boom, let's do it. Easy. Easy said, easy done. Let's preach the word of God as Jesus does. It's what's necessary for, for building one another up. As we walk along this Emmaus road, each of us tempted for the things that we had hoped for. It's the thing that we we do in stirring one another up in godliness, in holiness. We point one another to the scriptures. Jesus gives them a complete exposition of God's sovereign plan of salvation. He walks them through a study from Moses to the prophets, and he shows them a complete exposition that it always finds its hope in Christ. So there's two very important things here Jesus does. First, Jesus is showing them and he is showing us that he believes the scriptures are true. Jesus believes that the scriptures are true and he believes and knows that the scriptures are about him. He believes the scriptures are true. Now, that that doesn't mean that every word is literally about him and his death and his resurrection, but rather every part of the Old Testament is pointing forward to the cross and to the empty tomb. It's all pointing forward to that. The Old Testament is, is God preparing his people for a king that would come and suffer and die and rise again for his people, unlike any other king that they ever had. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is found in Christ alone. The Bible and all of its stories, every one of the stories that we learned as children, they're not about you. They're not about your morality. But they are about Him. They are fulfilled in Him. They're not stories about different things that I need to apply to my life to to slay the giants of my life. But we read the scriptures through the lenses of Jesus Christ and how the Bible is telling one large story in which Jesus is the only star. He is the only hero. Now we're in the Bible. You're there, but you're in the places that you really don't want to be. We're the sinners. We're the hopeless on the road. We are the scared Israelites hiding in the ditch from the giant. We are the mockers at the cross. But he is our hero because he is the Lord's anointed. He is the son of God. He is the one whom God has sent to be our savior, the son of God. And the whole story leads to him. And that is why he gives us his word and he teaches it as he did. Because how we know him is through his word. 
And isn't it wonderful that Jesus had such a confidence in the scriptures? I, I find it very hypocritical and very disingenuous that trained, ordained ministers of the church have such lack of a disregard for the word of God. They are the first ones to quickly to deny, many, to deny the miracles, to deny even the, the, the necessity of the resurrection, substitutionary atonement, and yet still proclaim Jesus to be loving and kind and all this other stuff. How disingenuous and hypocritical because Jesus confidently believed in the word of God. Jesus confidently believed in the flood because he sent it. Jesus confidently believed in the parting of the Red Seas because it was his hands that stayed the water. Don't let those morons confuse you. Jesus had confidence in the word of God. Brothers and sisters have confidence in the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Be confident in the word of of God. Have assurance in the promises of the word of God because that is what he does. And second, Jesus believes, again, that our faith, again, is not to be rooted in our own personal experiences only, but faith, gospel Christian faith, is rooted in the scriptures. We talked a lot about this already. But our faith in Jesus alone is a faith built on the Bible alone. Faith alone that is not built in the scriptures alone is faith in something else. Faith alone in the scriptures alone will always find its hope in Christ alone. And this is why Jesus again was hidden from those disciples. Because Jesus didn't want them to see with their flesh. He wanted their hearts and their minds and their souls to be drawn to the word of God that they may see him and delight in him. Why do you believe in the resurrection? Because the scriptures predicted it and told us and promised it. And we see here in Luke's gospel that he wants us to add confidence that God had fulfilled it. We don't make these things up. We don't come up with these things. We don't come up with our own meetings and our own ideas. You don't want to hear my own ideas and my own thoughts. But we want what the scripture has and have its meaning Because that is where we will find the bread of life, where our souls will be satisfied and our longings are fulfilled. Human experience and oral testimony is not what we rely on. And thanks be to God who has given us his scriptures and has preserved it over the centuries for us. That is what we rely on. We do not become our own authority by our experiences, but we trust the Lord that he uses those experiences to validate the truths of the word of God. And anything other than that is a lie. We are not our own guide, but the word of God is our guide. How far will we really get down the road if the lamp unto our feet is only ourselves? But if it is the word of God in which Jesus pointed those disciples who are still hidden from the fact that it's him, that it's the scriptures alone, 
that it's to be their guide, how much more is it to be our guide? For our joy is made complete when we are affixed upon the words of life. So if you're lacking any joy this morning, if you're like the two disciples walking down the Emmaus Road and the hope that you hoped for seems lacking, then let me tell you what Jesus said and what Jesus showed them. Your joy, your desire, your affection should be found and be pursuing and pressed into believing the Word of God and having confidence in the Word of God. The scriptures are given to us by God as a grace of God and is given to us, to the, to us, to you, to me, to the church for our joy. We need the word of God because it is his word and it is what Jesus proclaimed and it is what he has taught. And it is where we have confidence in our Savior who himself is the word of God. When pointing those disciples to the scriptures, brothers and sisters, Jesus, though still hidden from them, he was pointing them to himself. When you turn to the scriptures for your confidence and your assurance, you are turning to Jesus himself. Not to an emotion, not to a feeling, or not even to a past experience, but to a present truth and promises that is in his word. The same is for you. It's the same as for me. And the same as when you proclaim the gospel and share the gospel with those who are also walking this road who live hopelessly and sad. Give them the gospel, the word of God. Give them Christ. Give them Jesus. Yes, you can tell them about your salvation experience, but let that never triumph over the truth of the scriptures. Get to the gospel, get to the cross, get to the resurrection, because it's far more glorious than what we have to say in our own selves. Jesus points them to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, he points us to the scriptures this morning that we would find our hope and all all of our assurances in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the great reminder of pointing us to the scriptures and how we need the full counsel, Lord. So let us have eyes to see the full counsel of your word. Help us to see that in every word, every promise, we see the yes and amen of the fulfillment of Christ in them that he would receive all the glory and praise of all the work that he has done in each one of our lives. And so, Lord, we are thankful for your word. Continue to guide us, nurture us, let us feed upon it in these days. Let us be a people about the scriptures this, this day. Lord, use your people in this very broken, troubling time in our world that we would live peaceably, that we would live with open hands to all people, that we would seek peace, that we would seek the comfort of others as we can, and that we would love one another, we would serve one another, and most importantly, Lord, may we give the word of God to others as we know that we are pointing them directly to you. Father, we are thankful 
for your church. We're thankful for this gathering. In your name we pray all these things. Amen.